to Metro Connection. I'm Kavitha Cardoza, in this week for Rebecca Shear. Our theme today is milestones. We chose it because this seems to be the time of year when so many people experience those big milestone moments in life. Graduations, weddings, heading off to college or first jobs. Another milestone for children and their parents? The end of the school year. Summer is eagerly anticipated by many children, a season of ice cream, swimming pools and lazy days of leisure. Not necessarily so for many of the children at Ketchum Elementary in Southeast DC, a third of whom are homeless. For them, summer means the only stable thing in their life is no longer available. I have a lot of friends. Delana Jones is 10, with twisty braids and a toothy grin. She likes school and wants to become a teacher so she can help children. Her favorite subject is math. What about reading? I don't like reading. You don't like reading? It makes me hungry. It makes you hungry? Why? Because it takes long. I'm a little surprised, but I soon notice a pattern. Every question I ask Delana circles back to food. What was it like for you living in the shelter? I thought it was fun because we met some people and there was some cereal down there. You didn't have to pay for it. There was cereal? What's your favorite cereal? Cinema Touch Crunch. A few minutes later, I ask her what she's going to do this afternoon and Delana mentions the free after-school food pantry. It's held the third week of every month because that's when public assistance funds run low. She says she's helping her mom. When she's within the house with my baby sister, I go shopping for her and I might go today. Today is the pantry? And what do you do? Get stuff that we need, like oil, some cooking oil, and some chicken, and some juice, macaroni, sticks. How do you know what to buy? Because when I, when I make my own food, I see what's in there that we might need. Delana is one of more than 100 Ketchum Elementary children who are homeless. Almost all qualify for free and reduced lunch. That's why Principal Maisha Riddlesbrigger stands in the foyer at 8.30 every single morning to greet families. Well, I think it's important to greet families. I think it's important that they see the principal, that they're greeted with a warm face, a good morning, a hello, because you never know what's happened before they come into the school building. Riddlesbrigger says her students face many challenges related to poverty, and those challenges spill into the classroom. Food, or the lack of it, is a huge problem. I had a kindergartner that would come in, and if she was late at 9.30, breakfast was put up, she would come in knowing that there was no breakfast and bawling, crying because she was hungry because the last meal that she had was lunch the day before. She wasn't in the after-school program, so she didn't eat supper with us at the school. Her mom did not have food for her for dinner time, so the last meal she had as a kindergartner was at 11.30 a.m., and here it was, 9, 9.30 a.m. And so if she looked at the clock and saw that it was past the time that breakfast was there, she would fall out crying because of anxiety and because out of just sheer hunger. And we always would take food and put it aside for her because we knew she would be late every day. Um, so this is a reality for kids. Ketchum staff can help students during the school year. It's the summer months Riddlesbrigger worries about. While the school will be open for some children, she's concerned about the rest. We do have two summer programs here, so we'll be able to service about 60 to 80 kids this year in our summer programs. But in comparison to the 320 that we service every day, that's still an awful lot of kids that we're not ensuring that have three meals a day. 
And it's not just food or the dreaded summer slide during which children forget what they've learned during the academic year. Riddle Sprigger says many of her young students struggle with adult issues like homelessness or parents with substance abuse addictions. A lot of those things are huge barriers for kids. And we have kids that come into the school with so much on their shoulders. And you have to think that these are barriers that we have to either support them to create a bridge over or we have to knock down those barriers that are there for our students because as nurturing as we can be here in the school as loving as we can be in the school there's a lot of ugly realities outside of the school community that kids deal with and we can't shy away from attacking those issues and challenges head on here in the school and helping kids cope with that the school provides mental health services free bus tokens for parents warm clothes and school supplies it also partners with 20 different nonprofits to help families. The school even has a computer center so parents can apply for jobs online. But that's only during the school year. Delana Jones's mother, Sharida Keys, tries hard to keep the family together through their different moves and says education is a priority for her. Even when they were homeless and staying with relatives in Maryland, she made sure her children went to school. She loves Ketchum Elementary. and says school officials have helped her with a thanksgiving meal, christmas presents and transportation. She says the school food pantry helps feed her family of 9 for at least 3 meals. At first they didn't have meats. They just had, you know, non-perishable items. Now they have meats and they have sausages, sometimes they have bacon, sometimes they have chicken. My kids use it to get snacks. So it's really good. It's a good help. This summer, DC will provide free meals to all school-aged children in all wards, regardless of whether they participate in a summer program. But Ketchum is not one of the sites this year. Key says, apart from food, she's worried about what her daughter and six other children will do during summer. It's a lot of violence. It's a lot of drugs being sold on these streets. Sometimes I get on a bus in the morning with my kids, and you can smell marijuana. We have had a lot of violence going on in the last year. We have had somebody get shot at the barber shop. We had a child just two weeks ago got stabbed from the Anacostia kids in Cramer. We have drunks that stand at the corner. I hate it. It's not the season of fun Keys would want for her children, but until the family is on more stable footing and doesn't have to worry about where their next meal is coming from, summer will feel more like a hardship. than a happy time for Delana and many other children in our nation's capital. influx of summer interns has begun here in the nation's capital. For many would-be politicians, policy wonks and law students, an internship here in DC is an important milestone in their careers. This is also the time of year when many native Washingtonians land their first jobs, often through the city's summer jobs program. Former Mayor Marion Barry created that program back in the 1970s, and when he passed away last year, many people came forward to remember Barry and how that opportunity shaped their lives. Among them was Seku Balil. Both he and his daughter took part in the Mayor's Youth Leadership Institute, 
and he says it was a prime example of Barry's commitment to residents. Always help the dis, disenfranchised, disinherited, dysfunctional. Fast forward to today, and the current mayor, Muriel Bowser, would like to expand the program to serve more Washingtonians. But as Martin Ostermule found out, not everyone in city politics is a fan of that plan. Martin now joins us in the studio with more. Hi there, Martin. Hi, Kavita. So let's talk first about the symbolism of the summer jobs program. This is something that's been really important to D.C. mayors over the years, right? Absolutely. And to understand why, I don't think you have to look much further than Barry himself. Much of Barry's legacy stemmed from the summer jobs program. Now, every mayor since Barry has recognized the power of the summer jobs program, not only in providing job training, but also in providing a needed lifeline to many residents who struggle with poverty and few employment options. It's also served to promote public safety, though. Many supporters of the program say that sending the city's youth to work is better than leaving them on the streets during the summer with nothing to do. Despite their popularity, Martin, the summer jobs program has faced a lot of problems, right? Questions about costs and whether that money is being well spent? Yeah, and in part the popularity of the program has made many city officials hesitant to do anything that would make it seem like they're limiting access to it. In 2008, then-Mayor Adrian Fenty gave the order that basically no applicant could be turned away from a job. Now, that led to massive cost overruns and also concerns that participants weren't really working in meaningful jobs, but rather being warehoused for the summer. The administration of the summer jobs program has really improved since then, but there's still criticisms that it really isn't connecting participants to anything beyond that six-week-long job. I talked to Marcia Huff of the Young Women's Project about the summer jobs program. Her organization hosts participants every summer, and she says they try to give them tasks that help them build important work skills. But that's not the case across the program. There's a lot of youth who are placed at sites, and it's kind of part warehousing, um, part babysitting. You know, youth, especially youth who don't have a lot of outside support, family support, things like that, they need to use these summers to gain that experience. I mean, when you hit 18, whether you go to college, especially if you don't go to college, I mean, this may be the only employment experience that you'll have. My understanding is that Mayor Bowser wants to expand the program to include 22 to 24-year-olds. Why? What's her thinking? Well, last month when Bowser signed the expansion into law, she explained that the idea came from youth she met on the campaign trail when she was running for mayor. She said that many of them mentioned that they needed jobs and job training, but were too old for the program as it currently exists. Here she is. While they were disconnected, they didn't want to be. They wanted a pathway back to productive life. The other thing I learned about them was that they wanted to work. So I knew a government of uh, $12 billion every single year that makes investments could certainly invest in their 22 to 24-year-olds. But I gather, Martin, that some members of the D.C. Council are skeptical of Bowser's plan. What's at the root of their concerns? Well, the D.C. Council agreed to fund a pilot program of the expansion, but that'll only cover about 1,000 of the 2,522 to 24-year-olds who could have taken part. Now, the council backed away from the full expansion largely because a majority of the members said that young adults, like a 24-year-old, they don't just need a summer job, but rather targeted job training that will help them find a career later down the road. Now, I asked Maggie Ryden of the D.C. Alliance for Youth Advocates about this, and she said she agrees with the council's concerns. We absolutely appreciate the intent. We know that young people are struggling across the district to successfully enter the workforce. At the same time, we had very serious concerns about the ability of a six-week summer program to provide the depth or the meaningful 
experience to actually get young people into year-round full employment, which we know is what they truly need. This year's summer jobs program kicks off June 29th, so let's talk accountability. How will we know if this year's program is running smoothly and who's monitoring it? Well, there are plenty of things that have to happen to make sure the summer jobs program is running right. Participants have to have jobs to go to, they have to be paid on time, and so on. But measuring how successful the program is on a deeper level can be hard. I mean, how do you quantify how much experience a participant gets on a job? And even if the program is managed perfectly, it's not easy to say that a summer job is going to lead to a career. But this year, Kathy Patterson, who's the D.C. auditor and a former member of the council, will be looking at how the summer job program operates. It remains to be seen how she determines success and failure, but she'll still be watching. Well, we look forward to hearing more, Martin. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Have you taken part in D.C. summer jobs program? What was your experience like? You can share your thoughts on Twitter. Our handle is at WAMU Metro or send an email to metro at WAMU.org. After the break, a teen whose life was upended in Cameroon makes a fresh start for himself here in D.C. (laughs) It was a real cultural shock. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Kavita Cardoza, in for Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection, where our theme this week is Milestones. Later in the show, we'll meet Washingtonians who provide comfort to terminally ill homeless people as they prepare for the final milestone in life. We'll also talk with a man who met a significant birthday by climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. But we'll begin with the milestone of high school graduation. For any student, finishing high school is a major accomplishment. But for some, getting to that point of donning a cap and gown is daunting. For five years now, I've been sharing stories of students who've overcome obstacles to graduation in a series called Beating the Odds. This year, one of the students I met for that series was 19-year-old Georges Nayap. I I was uh, considered as the baby of the family, yes. Georges is soft-spoken with a ready smile, his accented English punctuated by short bursts of laughter. He grew up in Cameroon in Central Africa. His father was a college professor and his mother a high school principal. Life was good. I played soccer and tennis. Yeah, I had a lot of friends and it's very easy to make friends in Cameroon. And then when Georges was 15, his father started having what Georges calls political and ethical conflicts with his supervisors over an international development project. Two of George's siblings were already away in college and Georges and his elder brother were not told all the details. But the family started receiving threatening phone calls. Then one Sunday, things got far more serious. So my mom was going to church and and she was stabbed twice in the back. And they carried her to the hospital with blood going out of her back like a pump. It wasn't a robbery because she they didn't take her back. They didn't even try to take her back. One of her ribs was fractured and she had to be immobile for five months. Georges couldn't believe what had happened. It didn't feel real. For me, that was kind of too movie-like to be 
well until the moment i saw my mom lying on the hospital bed with the wounds on her and the blood all over the place that that's when i realized that something really really happened george's father was at a conference in the us and decided to stay on and seek asylum here meanwhile george's and his family stopped going outside in cameroon he couldn't tell friends they were leaving the country and he started isolating himself from them the family became fearful we used to stay awake in the night because because we were scared that people would break into the house and hurt us so we would take turns in the night like my brother would stay up till 2 and then my mom till 4 and then I would take till from from 4 till the morning a few months later george's came to the us he was 16 and a half it was a real cultural shock the first thing i thought about was how do i finish my education and go and become successful so i got i go into into my new high school and they talked to me about gpas sat scores and something i i really never heard of before what were the graduation requirements and how do i get accepted into a college his parents only spoke french so they couldn't find jobs despite being highly educated they also couldn't help him any more with schoolwork in fact he now helped them translating at doctors appointments and school events he changed the way he dressed no longer wearing traditional african prints because he wanted to fit in and while he spoke english he wasn't fluent i couldn't really express myself well i could understand them but they couldn't understand me so due to that major language barrier i couldn't easily make friends yeah. did you have to look up words exactly look up words <laughs> look up words was Google is really helpful on that, on that part. So I had to look for uh because of vocabulary, the English I was taught in Cameroon was um British English. So here was American English. So the a lot of words they used were completely different. So it would take me longer because sometimes I would need to translate a lot of things to uh to understand it. George's hit a low point. I was helping them doing your taxes and so I looked at the income of my dad and it was basically lower than uh, 15,000. And so I looked it up in Google because when you see 15,000 when you convert it to African money it's still a lot. So I looked up in Google to see in what in what um class we are now. So I saw I saw we couldn't like we couldn't leave with that. It was hard for us to even have food. We had to be on food stamps for example to uh, to survive. So I'm basically looking on on my life how it basically changed. I have I don't have no friends. My family is really poor at this point. and i have no certainty on how i'm going to do academically there were just too many changes but he didn't want his parents to worry my parents think i'm really strong so i wouldn't show to my parents that i i felt bad because but sometimes i would i would stay in my room alone and cry and ask myself but why why would this happen to me and my family everything being different was terrible for me i i don't i didn't know how to deal with it But gradually he made friends at school, started playing soccer again and earned straight A's. I felt like everything was on me and I had to make it for myself if I really wanted to be successful here and have like a revenge for my parents. Revenge for your parents meaning doing well. Exactly. <laughs> not, not 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 movie type revenge, but revenge was my the career of my parents and my, my mom and my dad was completely stopped when they got here george says his teachers at northwestern high school in hyattsville were very supportive they explained how things worked and encouraged him he graduated this year with a gpa of 3.56 because in cameroon graduation is not as official as here so they were 
kind of surprised then when they saw that I was because when we graduated here with cords and the day I was I dressed up for graduation they saw me with a lot of cords on me and they was like and they asked me why why are you wearing all that for I said those are merit cords that I received so they were really proud of me my my mom's I saw my mom's eye turning red even so it, it was really a proud moment for my family George's is going to Temple University this fall I really love mathematics, so I want to pursue a major in actual science at Temple University. I have to pass 15 exams because being an actuary is really hard to do, but I I feel like I'm ready for it, and I hope to open my own insurance company by the time I'm 30. That's my dream. Living in the U.S. may not have been the future he saw for himself growing up in Cameroon, but he says now that he's here, he's taking the opportunity and running with it. I'm Kavita Kadeza. We're going to turn now from graduation to transportation with our regular segment from A to B. This time around, we'll start with a topic many Washingtonians have an opinion about, metro. One Monday morning last month, the rush hour commute turned into chaos on the orange, blue and silver lines when a report of smoke forced Metro to suspend rail service in both directions between Roslyn and Foggy Bottom stations. The commute was so bad, Metro apologized for it. But that wasn't enough for federal safety investigators. And transportation reporter Martin DeCaro joins us now with more on that. Hi, Martin. Hello, Kavitha. Martin, some of Metro's problems have had to do with smoke incidents. And this week, federal officials made some recommendations about how to address those problems. What were they suggesting? It was the National Transportation Safety Board, and it made a recommendation requiring immediate action. More on that in a moment. The context here is important. It's the ongoing federal investigation into the smoke incident in January at LaFont Plaza. You'll remember Carol Glover of Alexandria died of smoke inhalation. More than 80 other passengers were sickened. When the NTSB finds something potentially dangerous during the course of an investigation, it'll issue recommendations. So this one involves the protective sleeves on power cables that power the third rail throughout the rail system. The NTSB is telling Metro to fix these uh, protective sleeves. They were installed in disregard of Metro's own guidelines. Even the repair job at the source of the smoke at LaFont Plaza needs to be redone. So Metro has said it'll begin the repairs immediately. This doesn't necessarily mean that the uh, protective sleeves covering the third rail power cables were the cause of the January 12th incident. That remains under investigation. And uh, we do know, though, that an electrical malfunction caused arcing on that day when electricity escapes the third rail. So local members of Congress were not happy about what happened to Metro. And I understand they sent a letter to Metro demanding answers. That's right. The entire regional congressional delegation wrote Metro's interim general manager. Get this. The letter stated in part, We are appalled that riders' lives may have been put at risk simply because of a small yet critical component of the power cable connectors was not installed as required by the manufacturer's directions and WMATA engineering specifications, WMATA being Metro. We spoke to Virginia Congressman Don Beyer about the letter. He was one of the signatories, and this is what he had to say. So for years now, there's been a gap between the open electrical cable and the steel walls. Then we found second was that Metro really didn't have any quality control system in place. When they were checking the cables, they were not checking for the fact that they weren't properly sealed. 
And then the third thing is there hasn't been a plan since they found this out to go fix everything. The letter also states, we ask for your swift attention to this inquiry and request a response addressing these and any other issues associated with this latest NTSB recommendation within 30 days. So when will we learn more about what exactly happened during that smoke incident on January 12th? The NTSB is holding two public hearings, June 23rd and 24th, at its headquarters, coincidentally located at La Fonte Plaza. Metro problems are not the only transportation issues facing our region lately. This month, all DC cab companies were supposed to have more wheelchair-accessible taxis in their fleets. But as you've reported, some companies are struggling to do so. Yes, and you can imagine how people with physical disabilities feel about the possibility some taxi companies may miss a June 29th deadline to have at least 6% of their fleets wheelchair accessible. 6% doesn't seem like a whole lot. Why the delay? It comes down to money and will. First, I'll tell you that we did ask the D.C. Taxi Cab Commission for a list of the cab companies requesting 180-day extensions to the 6% mandate, but our request was declined. So there's a freeze on H-tag licenses. If you want to drive a cab in D.C., you need an H-tag on your car. So independent drivers, if I wanted to purchase and run my own cab company, just one car, uh, cannot purchase and license their own wheelchair-accessible taxi because they can't get an H-tag right now. So it's up to the companies to convert their existing H-tags to a wheelchair-accessible vehicle. But some apparently either don't want to spend the money or are having trouble finding the cash to upgrade their fleets. Roy Spooner is the general manager of Yellow Cab. His fleet will be in compliance, but he explains what some of his competitors are dealing with. They have to go out and acquire these vehicles and then depend on drivers renting those vehicles from them. I think that poses some financial issues for them because you can end up making the investment, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have anyone to rent it. So disability rights advocates aren't really buying that argument. They say these taxis, wheelchair-accessible vehicles, won't just lie around on the lot unused. They believe there is a demand for these rides out there. So what will happen to cab companies that don't make the deadline? Well, it's not clear because the Taxi Cab Commission won't say anything about this, but a a company could either get a 180-day extension or face fines. Fines really seem unlikely. Remember, the initial deadline was last December, so they've already been given an extra six months to meet this mandate. Any good news on the transportation front, Martin? Yes. (laughs) Montgomery County leaders say the Silver Spring Transit Center will, yes, will soon be ready to be transferred over to Metro. Now, that project has been plagued, to say the least, by a lot of problems, structural problems. Uh, Work to fix those problems is wrapping up. So sometime later this summer, the project will be ready for Metro to inspect. And any word on when the transit center may open? It's already four years behind schedule, right? Well, Metro says a date won't be determined until it accepts and inspects the transit center. So sorry, no grand opening date set yet. And, you know, it's been so long uh, since this thing was supposed to be finished, we kind of forgot what it's for. Well, it's a very important piece of the, I guess, regional transit system when it's up and running. It's going to be a rail hub, a bus hub, connections for people in that heavily developed area of Montgomery County. So if it opens and it is useful, it'll be great for commuters. Well, keep us posted, Martin. I will, Kavitha. If you've got a transit transportation story you'd like to suggest for Martin, he's always eager to hear from you. His Twitter handle is at Martin DeCaro, and you can reach us here at Metro Connection as well. We're at WAMU Metro. And now, time to knock on a few doors with our ongoing journey around the region. 
This week on Door to Door, we'll visit Old Town Fairfax City, Virginia, and the River Terrace neighborhood of Northeast D.C. My name is N.Q. Culver. I live in River Terrace community, and I've been back in this community for about six years. The River Terrace community is located along the Anacostia River, adjacent to Benning Road and between uh, the uh, 295 Highway. So it's a cul-de-sac community. Uh, it's in uh, northeast Washington, D.C. in Ward 7. River Terrace was initially founded, established to house workers from the uh, Pepco plant, which is uh, behind us here. Recently, the smokestacks were demolished. The majority of people who grew up in River Terrace at some point moved back to River Terrace. And, you know, it's a multi-generational community. Uh, we had, you know, pass our properties down from generation to generation. I myself am fourth generation River Terrace. My wife is a third generation River Terrace resident. Uh, what it's like to live in River Terrace is it's like home. Uh, the families have been connected for multiple generations going back to the, the 60s and 70s. And it is literally what I would imagine and imagine when I was living elsewhere when I thought of what true community is like. My name is Mary Peterson, and I live in Old Town, Fairfax City, which is basically the area that is close by the Fairfax Courthouse at the intersection of Routes 123 and 236, the historic downtown area of Fairfax County and of Fairfax City. George Washington, of course, was associated both with the Episcopal Church in Fairfax County, including Truro Parish, which was the predecessor for the buildings that are here for Truro Church. His will is in the courthouse, and so there are many connections with George Washington. At the time of the Civil War, there were a number of houses here. It, of course, was occupied early by the Union Army, and most of the citizens, including my ancestors, evacuated. Old Town Fairfax, it's changed. It's evolved a lot. And I think you're seeing uh, throughout the metro area a move towards living in towns or living in developments that are meant to be like towns. For me, it isn't just living in Fairfax in my experience. It was growing up with family in Fairfax. So it's been a place for all seasons. We heard from Mary Peterson in Old Town Fairfax City and Sinkyu Culver in River Terrace. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, let us know. You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. In a minute, how one man met his fear of approaching the age at which his father and grandfather both died. I've realized that Kilimanjaro really wasn't so much the milestone. It was to commemorate the milestone of what I learned from my father when he had his heart attack. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Kavitha Cardoza, in this week for Rebecca Shear. Today our show is all about milestones. Earlier this hour, we talked with Georges Nayab, a young man who arrived in our region two years ago from Cameroon and just graduated from high school. In some ways, his story is very different from that of Kumba Gay, the teen we'll meet next. But like George's, Kumba has overcome a lot to finish her high school education. I never like really felt 
like I've had a home to myself since I was maybe five or six. Kumbake is gentle with long braids and a shy smile. Her mother has sickle cell disease and was hospitalized for a month when Kumba was eight years old. She lost her job, couldn't pay the rent, and found herself homeless with Kumba and her little sister. We first started off living with one of my mom's family friends, and that didn't work out so well. So then we were living in different hotels. I remember I, we used to like you know look up what was the cheapest hotel to stay in that night, and so that went on all through the winter, which was like the worst time ever to be homeless. So there were times when you could be in school and not know where you're sleeping that night? Definitely. That was really, really hard and really, really difficult. And it continued to be like that even through high school. When they couldn't afford cheap hotels anymore, they stayed with friends or relatives for a few days at a time. Living in different places was especially hard for Kumba because she's allergic to so many things. Every single type of grass, every single type of tree, mold, and then also I'm allergic to rodents, cats, dogs. And then in terms of food allergies, I'm allergic to soy, corn, eggplant, um, coconut, and avocado, and all nuts. For years, she stuck mostly to rice and beans. Because corn and soy is in basically everything, it causes irritation to my skin, and then it also triggers my asthma if a family member either has a dog or has a rodent problem or the room was really dusty or if it had carpet, that was something that really triggered my asthma symptoms. I think one of my worst years was probably ninth grade year when I had about 17 emergency room visits. But going to the doctor wasn't always an option. Very often I wouldn't go to the doctor. I would just stay home because it's, it's just too expensive. Between the money that it costs for us to actually get there and then paying the copay and then paying for the medication, it was just better for me to just stay home and try and get better. Kumba missed a lot of school, and because she's homeless, it was hard to keep track of assignments. A lot of times we would either put our stuff, stuff in, our belongings in storage units, and then like we would lose the storage unit because my mom couldn't afford to pay for it anymore. So like I've lost a lot of textbooks because of that. You know, homework gets misplaced sometimes just because you're kind of all over the place. So that was definitely another you know problem. And just trying to have a space where you can, like, actually sit down and do work was also very difficult. So she started completing her homework during lunch or before she went home. Because, as she says, once she left school, she was on the go. Kumba's mother found another job, but her shift was three in the afternoon until midnight. So for two years, Kumba didn't see her mother during the week. She also had to start looking after her little sister. I needed to make sure that we had clean clothes, make sure that the laundry was getting done, make sure that, you know, there was all there would be food in the house so I'd have to cook. Then also make sure that she's doing her homework because I know that like because of my mom's schedule she would be extremely tired and so trying to take as much off her plate as possible was my goal. Didn't teachers know what was going on? No. I never said anything. I was ashamed of it. For me, like I'm sorry. Tears streamed down her cheeks. That's okay, take your time. <sighs> it's uh, hard for me sometimes to just like talk about different difficult situations. I'm also a person where it's really hard for me to ask for help. And you know, like I just try and like 
tough it out and like stay strong through it. Kumpa and her family are now living with a family friend in Southeast DC. Her school is in Northwest, the opposite end of the city. And the commute in the morning is about two hours long because of rush hour, and then it's the same in the evening. I take a bus, a train, then transfer, and then another bus. Often it was too much. I was feeling really, really discouraged. There was just too many things going on, and I was just drowning, and I was just like, Ugh. This is it. I'm like, I'm finished. But Kumba persevered. What made you keep going with education and you didn't drop out of school? I think it's a combination of the support that I had from my mother and then also the support that I had from my school. Um, Even though people didn't really know what was going on, my school is really like a family. A lot of the, even the kids that are in my class and my closest friends I've known since I was in fifth grade. She says school was one of the few stable things in her life and teachers and staff at Washington Latin gave her all kinds of opportunities. She was involved in model United Nations and debate. She speaks French and a little Arabic, and she was captain of the cross-country team this year. She says school helped her see there was a big world out there. Knowing that there is something beyond the situation at home, and the opportunities are endless and they are open for me. I know this has been hard for you, but I feel so lucky that I'm able to share and you're willing to share your story with so many people. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. This year, I realized that I really don't have anything to be ashamed of. And all of the experiences that I've had really makes me who I am. And that's something that I should actually be really proud of. Kumba has gotten to George Washington University with a full-ride scholarship and says she's ecstatic and excited to begin her studies in international relations and environmental policy this fall. Support for education reporting on WAMU 88.5 comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Turning 50 is a major milestone in life, but for Silver Spring resident Brian Whitmer, reaching his 55th birthday in April was a much bigger reason to celebrate. It meant he'd beaten the family curse. More about that in a minute. First, though, we'll go back to 2013, when the middle school history teacher made a decision. He was going to climb Tanzania's Mount Kilimanjaro. With his domestic partner by his side and a notepad in hand, Brian accomplished that goal nearly a year ago. He later blogged about his journey and recently sat down with Metro Connections' Lauren Landau to talk about the very personal reason why he decided to summit Africa's highest mountain. I made the decision in the summer of 2013 because I was looking down the barrel of my 54th birthday. And that's um, it's a number that looms large in family history because my grandfather died of a heart attack when he was 54. And uh, my father then had a heart attack when he was 54. So I wanted to celebrate in a big way that I was turning 54 and plan to make it past that. With an activity that requires a pretty healthy heart, was that intentional? Oh yeah, that was a big part of it. I learned from my uh, relatives' mistakes, and I've led a very healthy lifestyle since then, and now it was time to prove it. Was this the first mountain you'd climbed? Are you an avid climber outdoorsman? My domestic partner and I do a lot of backpacking, which involves going up mountains, but not mountain climbing technically. Uh, We've never been above 12,000 feet before this, and Mount Kilimanjaro is above 19,000 feet. As you can see from the pictures around the room, we, we do a lot of crazy adventures. We've been to Glacier National Park and Mount Rainier and uh, Yosemite, and we've climbed a lot of things, just nothing nearly this high. 
how did you to prepare for this? How long did you spend training and, and what did you do to make sure you could get up Mount <laughs> Kilimanjaro and get back down again? The main thing for preparing for Kilimanjaro is just walking, walking, walking and doing more walking because that's what you do. The, it's not a, a technical climb. You don't need ice axes and, and crampons and special equipment. You just need a lot of patience and endurance. Your father, your grandfather, as you were training for this journey, were you thinking of them? Kilimanjaro really wasn't so much the milestone. It was to commemorate the milestone of what I learned from my father when he had his heart attack. I also used to be, right around that time, a, a terrible procrastinator and a quitter. And I resolved then to change my ways and, and to become an organized person with some grit. So I was really climbing the mountain to demonstrate that I had achieved that. Did you have any challenges in climbing the mountain? Yeah, I got a terrible case of um, altitude sickness, um, acute mountain sickness, AMS, is um, what a lot of people get when they get above certain elevations. There's not enough oxygen getting into your brain, and so you become hypoxic. It hits everybody a little bit differently, but for me, it made me incredibly sleepy. I mean, like, I'm ready to just sit down and pass out sleepy. And I got that once at 15,000 feet, and then a couple of days later when we went to the summit, I had a terrible experience with it. But... We had a very excellent group of guides and uh, leaders with us, and they managed to help me get up to the top. But for the most part, it's just a relentless push for the summit. This is all done at night, by the way. You start out at um, around 11 o'clock at night so that you're getting to the uh, summit around dawn. And so we were climbing probably seven hours uh, in the darkness with nothing but uh, a little pool of uh, headlamp beam at your feet. You're just lost in, in thought, and when you get extremely um, exhausted and when you're having AMS, your thought is pretty much, I can't go on, I have to go on, I can't go on, I have to go on. And that's the conversation I had for hours on end that night. That was Silver Spring resident Brian Whitmer talking with Metro Connections' Lauren Landau. His story came to us via WAMU's Public Insight Network, or PIN, it's a way for us to let you know about stories we're working on and for you to contribute story ideas to us. You can learn more about it at metroconnection.org slash PIM. Not every milestone involves climbing a mountain or landing a big college scholarship – Sometimes just making it to an anniversary that seemed unthinkable in years past is achievement enough. That's the case with our next story. For 25 years, Joseph's House in D.C.'s Adams Morgan neighborhood has been a home to homeless men dying of AIDS. It opened its doors at a time when the AIDS crisis was at its peak, a time when it was virtually impossible for poor disenfranchised people who had contracted the disease to access care. Since then, Joseph's House has served hundreds of men and over the years, women in their final days. Lorden Ober brings us the story. It's breakfast time at Joseph's House and the talk of the communal table is the star dish, fried potatoes. These are the best fried potatoes in the city. That's big talk from Executive Director Patty Waddell. But she would know. The residents and staff eat meals together every day. It's part of what makes the house feel like a home. At the end of one table, nurse's aide Sarah Hoops is cutting up sausage and scrambled eggs into little dime-sized bites. 
for one of our guys upstairs. Um, she's having trouble swallowing these days. So to make it safe for him, I'm going to make it really small. At the other end of the table, a resident named Marcel is pulverizing his morning pills with a mortar and pestle. That's my medicine. Uh, do you put it in juice? Yeah. Yeah. Because I have a problem. Swallowing. So I crush it and put some water, mix it in. When the bacon, grits, and fried potatoes are polished off, the staff heads back to work, and the five residents at the table, all black men in the end stages of AIDS or cancer, do what they want. Watch TV, smoke a cigarette, whatever. Patty Waddell and I pop out onto the porch for a chat. Joseph's house is an unlikely institution in this rapidly changing city. For the past 25 years, it has served as a landing place for homeless men and women dying from AIDS or cancer. These are people who otherwise would have died on the street or languished in a hospital. We really are intentional about looking like and smelling like and feeling like a home because there is a different quality of healing that can happen in a home than in a hospital. When the house opened its doors in 1990, drugs to treat the disease were expensive and hard to get. So the diagnosis was often tantamount to a death sentence. Safe shelter was often the best treatment a poor person with AIDS could hope for. For the thousands of people who are homeless, it's still a terrible disease. And it's still a disease that's killing people, killing poor people. Today, Joseph's House provides roof for eight people experiencing homelessness and near the end of their lives. The average stay here is six weeks. In the years since the house's inception, AIDS has become a treatable illness, assuming you have the resources to access care. If you don't, Waddell says, life looks a lot like it did 25 years ago. The need in those days was for a roof over one's head. And middle-class people who had the virus pretty much had a place to stay, but not homeless people. But things have shifted. In the past couple of decades, the landscape of HIV-AIDS has changed in terms of funding for prevention and treatment. So Joseph's House has evolved. We have a real heart for accompanying people who are homeless and dying. And so we broadened our mission to welcome women, as well as folks who are transgender and people who have terminal cancer. Waddell uses the word accompany to describe the process of seeing a resident through death and beyond. It's a sacred act and one that hasn't changed much in the last quarter century. She takes me upstairs to show me a room of a resident named Cecilia who died the day before. The bed is made, and there is a vase of flowers and a lit candle on a table by the bed. Death is honored here. It's our practice to really respectfully bathe the body of the person who has just died, taking lots of time with no sense of, of emergency, and really feel, feel the truth of the fact that this person isn't here anymore. Something about honoring the body and feeling the truth that they're not in the body anymore. I don't know why it helps so much, but it really helps. And it really helps the other residents who know of her death, who know that 
her body is being respectfully treated, too. While death is so much a part of life at Joseph's house, the home doesn't feel weighted by it. Framed photos of residents, past and present, cover every side table and mantle. Mementos given by family members of the departed line the walls. And jazz music plays softly on the stereo. Still, while Joseph's house has been a home to so many in their final moments over the years, Waddell puzzles over the fact that there is still a need for it. I want people to know that African Americans in Washington, D.C., who are poor and affected by a stigma that has to do with HIV and AIDS, are dying still. And we've got to change this. You know, a place like Joseph's House should not be necessary in Washington, D.C. in 2015. For Waddell and the rest of the folks at Joseph's House, the ideal is that 25 years from this milestone, they'll be out of a job. I'm Lauren Ober. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Martin DeCaro, Lorden Landau, Martin Ostemule, and Lorden Ober. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lorden Landau is our editorial assistant. Our interns are Molly Luray and Jamie Rapp. John Hines produced this week's Door to Door. Special thanks to Kristen Sorensen for her work on our interviews with Kumba Gay and Georges Nayab. Thanks as always to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or want to listen to past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can find a link on our website, metroconnection.org, or check us out on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when our theme will be Solutions, We'll bring you stories of Washingtonians working to solve a variety of tricky challenges, from the high cost of housing to the way we fund political campaigns. Plus, we'll head to the Baltimore neighborhood that was the center of strife after the death of Freddie Gray. We'll look at anti-poverty efforts tried there in the past and find out why they have yet to succeed. I'm Kavita Cardoza, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.